Hi, this is Cook Grigo for the picture-poems.com website in the circle in the square. Thanks for tuning in. I wanted to start a new set of talks this morning. Talking hands, talking feet. So it's primarily for the Circle in the Square website, for performing musicians, poets, dancers, composers, and whatnot. But uh, it could also be of interest to people um, that already know the picture-poems.com website. They're interested more in climate crisis, water photography. As you can hear, I'm down here at Heartbreak Meadows Base Camp in a place I call um, Manhattan, next to two wonderful balsam, young balsam poplars. And uh, I hope we don't have too much wind. It's still summer solstice time, so that's a week before and after summer solstice I see as kind of a period um, together with a movement of a crescendo moving towards it and a very slow decrescendo moving away from it. So we're still right at the peak. And so it uh, has flipped to, to very warm. So we're down here seeking a little bit of respite and refreshment in the stream and um, cooling off in the shade. And uh, people who know me a little bit better know that I'm a real procrastinator, especially when it comes to hard, difficult things. Oh, I'll do that tomorrow. And I've been wanting to do this uh, talking hands, talking feet set of pieces for some time. And it's partly the putting off part, and it's partly for some reason that it's difficult in a specific uh, way, not for the listener, I hope, but for me personally, because it um, is like sitting next to the stream. I've talked about this many times before. I can make photographs, make recordings, and uh, perhaps even videos or whatever, uh, but one really has to come to the stream to experience directly, personally, what it's about. So, Talking Hands, Talking Feet is entirely experiential. But you can get any day, idea, that uh, just like you can get an idea of Zen Buddhism, for example, or climbing mountains by reading books about it, and then uh, kind of uh, become curious in a wholesome way. Say, so, yeah, I'd like to try that out. But talking hands, talking feet. And to make it simpler, both for myself and the listener, I thought it might be good the way we did uh, with the um, 12 primary concepts understanding the shape of change talks. They're all on SoundCloud, by the way, put together in an album. So that's about eight hours of talks and music 
about a new way, a new philosophy of music, really. And Talking Hands, Talking Feet is definitely a part of that. And I've referred to it before. And uh, what it's about is the primarily fragmentation in healing fragmentation. Like you can imagine coming to this little mountain stream uh, to heal something. Perhaps you have uh, a zoom in your ears that we call that terrible name tinnitus and um, would like to see if that can heal. I believe it can heal. So the sound of living water can do uh, miracles. So to heal fragmentation, well first and foremost is that uh, we have to stop the denial <laughs> that they're not split apart. So poetry and music are like generally in two very different uh, spaces. When it comes first and foremost to the classical arts, and more frequent listeners will know that uh, in the most general philosophical way, I question the wisdom of this speciation of both music and poetry as a kind of cultural habit. So we say, yeah, I do uh, rap poetry, I do cowboy poetry, I do spoken word poetry. Um, um, whatever. And the same in music is even worse. I do jazz, I do improvise, I do new music, I do classical music, whatever that may be. I do kind of orchestral music. So here at Heartbreak Meadows, where we have the leisure and privilege to take a more philosophical approach, we start with a much wider circle. And I can tell you that it is deeply like this water, and even the sound of this water, uh, deeply uh, refreshing. So we're washing away, letting go into this pure running mountain water, all of these categories, habits of thought, they're really just tags that we put on the movement of living sound, meaning, and energy. So, talking hands, talking feet, the theme of this first introductory talk is step time. So instead of using, it's an okay word, syllable, syllabic, so it has a lab is the tongue, um, we use the word step. We use the word step. So that's five steps. Now where that comes from, we don't really quite know for sure, do we? But we're very concerned about a way of looking at moving living sound that helps us 
understand it and move it and be it in a very direct experiential way. So, as an introduction, we're cleaning out a lot of stuff that we don't need in our backpack. Well, um, the first thing we don't need is classical ars poetica or rhetoric. Not in terms of logic and argument, but in terms of poetics. So, you know, pentameter and all of that. Um, we're throwing that out all together. There it goes down the river. You can see it go. So, those of you who have suffered university English and poetics, now is your time to heal. There it goes. Well, what we're doing is very much more powerful and very much more, not just up-to-date and relevant, but is general in the sense of, there are two different ways of looking at general. That's a movement, right? I'll just do it very quickly for fun. General to specific, specific to general. Well, I'm out here doing ph um, uh, photography, uh, phenological, time-based. I'll do this very quickly. Um, field work, so I'm looking at a meadow. It's part weedy, part natural, but mostly weeds, overgrazing and whatnot. And, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of Latin that you have to learn and you're understanding that. But, um, phenological five steps. We don't need this uh, cumbersome rhetoric. So we're talking about steps, step time. General. There's a different way of looking at general that is generative. Generatore, you say in Italian for parents. It's the parent concept. So uh, music with a capital M is much more general than saying, for example, um, contemporary poetry or something like that, or cowboy poetry or rhyming poetry. We're just talking about this mystery of living sound when it becomes almost music, but not quite, almost music, and is carrying all of these magnificent uh, images and resonances that are very deep and have a very beautiful uh, sound. There are other, we're not defining anything. But we do know that we don't need this classical rhetoric. Not only do we not need it, but it's worse than useless, in my view, because it's in the way. It tends to, we have to turn a little bit here, uh, distort our thinking. And, of course, that's a statement, and I would appreciate it if you really question that. Not to uh, criticize it so much in the sense that the spirit of criticism has degenerated to the point, especially in the English-speaking cultures of the world, that we think always of two guns pointing at each other. So someone's going to win, right? And someone's going to be shot dead. Well, that's not what I mean by criticism. We're in firmly seated in the dialogue circle and so we're questioning everything 
And if something is in the way, that usually means that we're attached to it for some reason. So step time, what is that about? Well, it is directly connected to in the circle and the square. You see, that's for especially motivated, energized, talented, young performance, a music, poetry, dance performance project. In that sense that you're devoting your life to the muse. Right. So, as a sine qua non, a condition, um, one is very uh, dedicated and serious. So, um, you're willing to drop anything. So, it's a part of our daily practice, step time in the circle and the square. And it's also a part of our daily practice of yoga in the Alexander Technique which I've talked about in other talks. You can just uh, Google that and it will come up, I think. Well, uh, we also redefine yoga in Alexander Technique in a very simple way. Again, we're looking for some sort of generative, very large circle essence. So we don't want to start out by being overly burdened with the past or limited in any way. So step time, yoga as movement without force, and Alexander technique simply as movement without unnecessary tension. So you can see that it's directly related to the idea of non-violence, that everything is done without forcing. And since we live basically in a culture deeply conditioned to doing everything with unnecessary force, just think of education, just think of agriculture, just think of international politics, just think of the arts. We are not free of that in the arts. As an example, force in the arts, say you play in a symphony orchestra, well, how the hell did you come up with 21st violins <laughs> in, a, in a, an orchestra, or even 10 or 15 to play uh, Strauss or Mahler? Well, I would suggest, first and foremost, I would question that altogether, that why are these huge ensembles necessary? Well, in my view, and I'm putting that into the circle, don't uh, accept it, just look at it. It's this uh, very self-centered uh, desire to amplify a certain very limited quality of energy. And after Bach in the 19th century, well, they didn't quite have what we're using here forms of very subtle forms of electricity to amplify a signal. They just put more and more people. <laughs> and the only reason why uh, Wagner stopped at 20 or more is because of the speed of sound. Had the speed of sound, you know, more than some 
300 meters a second, been twice that. To say four times like that underwater, the orchestra uh, would be, what, four times as big. Well, I'll leave that to your imagination. But it's uh, totally arbitrary and at the same time very destructive. Uh, not just because of the quality of sound, but especially the quality of relationships of the people who play in such an ensemble, because it cannot become otherwise than very hierarchical, forced, and mechanical. But don't take my word for it. Just look at it. So, yoga, doing things without force, that does not mean that we're all expert uh, doing our exercise. That's what, in the circle in the square, yoga is not just about doing exercises. It's especially in the original sense of yoga, going all the way to Patanjali, however many millennia, that's uncertain, say 2,000 years ago, that um, it's much more about uh, spiritual things, metaphysical things, um, um, consciousness things, than just becoming a beautiful Hollywood yoga practitioner, we hope, on the California beach. But it does require a certain devotion, doing things without force. So what we look at is doing things <laughs> with force. So it's in a way that spirit of the Alexander technique in Krishnamurti that, that you take things away. So it's pure what we call truth in function, not truth in content of a static thing. Like we were just talking about rhetoric. Well, we have to demonstrate that this way of looking, step time, is more powerful, right? Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. And that's difficult to do without directly experiencing it. So we have yoga without force. We have Alexander technique, doing things without unnecessary tension. Unfortunately, the AT, or Alexander Technique, is not yet an integral part, not just of musical and theatrical and dance education, which it definitely should be, right from the very beginning, from the youngest age, but just education generally. It's very unfortunate, but that will change. It certainly changed here uh, with our little, um, in principle, school at Heartbreak Meadows a school without buildings, a spiritual school that moves about. So Alexander Technique, unfortunately for young people it's very expensive, so experiment, get books, read about it, watch demonstrations, go to group lessons, and when you can afford it, take a few lessons. Uh, um, as a uh, caveat, most Alexander technicians, <laughs> as I jokingly call them, uh, would totally disagree with my way of looking at the technique, but that's no problem. That uh, um, I came to the technique 
through Krishnamurti because I saw a certain similarity that it's mostly about taking away the fact of violence, so directly questioning that. And I also came to it together with my uh, performance practice in music. Maybe we're getting a little bit too much wind here. It can change in a heartbeat here, it's Heartbreak Meadows. So it's now cloudy, picking up wind. It'll probably open back up. But notice the flow of our little stream is remarkably constant. Talking hands, talking feet, step time. Well, say you're a conductor. Well, that Alexander technique has certainly improved your technique as well as the yoga. And one of the fragmentations we're addressing is in contemporary culture, um, I-E-Y-E, -E, dominance, especially in the classical arts, especially, especially in classical music. Now, that could be the theme of a whole uh, talk, but just let me say that uh, we'll go to a concert and just simply watch Say they're going to play a uh, Mozart uh, symphony or a little Mozart concerto or whatever. And you see the small orchestra, modest size, and all the people. Well, the first thing you notice is that everyone is seated. Well, that's okay. But then the second thing you notice is that everybody has one of those black music stands. Now, if you're not a musician, you don't know quite, you just assume they have some sort of a, a um, page that they're reading from. Everybody is basically literate with reading a newspaper. So, well, even if you don't read music, you know that there's some sort of marks on a page that they're reading. Then you'll have the pianist and the conductor. But uh, the people in the orchestra are very intensely focused on that page and there are any number of reasons for it but what I'm suggesting is that uh, that's not necessarily the case and it has very many profound implications especially how um, in the movement of relationship so here now we're doing yoga we're doing it right now, and we're doing Alexander Technique, and we're doing Talking Hands, Talking Feet. So we're looking at a movement of relationship, and there's a certain disorder. Why are not these people, say you're conducting, and they're not listening? They're not listening to the soloist, they're not watching you, the conductor, and they're not even listening to their stand, you call them standmates, that like if you're playing first violin, they're not even listening to the violas, let alone the um, or the, the person right next to them, let alone the violas. And the longer you sat in one of these orchestral machines, really, it's very uh, a classic pyramid, hierarchical structure, and even the best of the orchestras. So we're talking about Cleveland. We're talking about Berlin. We're talking about Vienna. The best of the orchestras. It's still very hierarchical. And why, 
from the Alexander Technique point of view, it's composed right into the notes that it has to be that way. Mozart didn't give a damn. He was only going to do that piece once. And that was the tradition. You bring the people together, <laughs> and there was a court orchestra, highly uh, gifted, talented, expert musicians, if you were lucky and very privileged, and they knew that for sure. And so there would be a little bit of rehearsal, and they knew the language, they put it together, and boom, you do the next part. <laughs> it was not intended to do time after time after time and to record again and again and again. So why would you do it? Why? Because it's become a cult. C-U-L-T. A cult. Not in this case of complicatedness. That's more new music. A cult of complicatedness. That's what's destroyed new music. That the more difficult, the better. <laughs> and then you get your bragging rights. Well, um, if it's the Cleveland Orchestra, or Berlin, or Vienna. Well, it's very different. They're supposed to be very refined, you know. <laughs> but still, they're repeating and repeating and repeating. So anything that's repeated like that, as you say, ad nauseum, <laughs> until you get sick, well, becomes ever more mechanical. We would assume Mozart would throw a fit. Let's hope so. Well, we're throwing our fits long ago, and so now we're up here at Heartbreak Meadows listening to the water. Not trying to figure it out. It's as clear as the sound of this water. But only if we step back and look at performance practice, the whole of performance practice, not just in the musical arts, of performance, the ritual of performance, Devoting one's life to the ritual of performance? Or just doing it as a compliment? Say you're a doctor or a mathematician, and when you go home at night, you get out your clarinet. Or violin. And perhaps even play new music. Think of that. So talking hands, talking feet. Step time. What's that about? Well, about not bringing poetry and music together, but starting from such a general place that they're already one. You're not trying to make them one. They are one. In, in order to do that, you have to know what's the very most important thing. And in the circle and the square, it's the breath. The breath is the measure of all things. Now that sounds self-evident, I hope. It certainly is in a serious yoga or Alexander practice. And so in the practice of talking hands, talking feet, we simply become aware of that, which we've always known, but because of fragmentation and because of the violence of Western culture being forced into any number of different 
straitjackets at the university, at your gig in the symphony orchestra, wherever. We've not just lost contact with it, but have totally forgotten. So talking hands, talking feet, the breath as the measure of all things. So I, dominant culture, take poetry. We question the whole of any poetics that's based on the printed page. As we've talked about before, the printed page is simply a musical score. And yet, just like musical scores, with the cult of complicatedness have taken on a life of their own, all these hyper-complicated marks on a page that no one can really play or understand, and that really don't mean anything because they don't move. Well, you can do the same, and we have done the same, with poetry and literature generally. One saying from Himatu Yalakate. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The young chief Joseph was born very close to here. And he must have said that sometime around the great Nimipu Nez Perce Wars, 1877. It doesn't take many words to say the truth. Well, many people have said something similar. Now that's true. So when cultures are unaware of the wheel of thought in its mechanical nature, which amplifies self-centered ego energy and mistakes it for the divine, that's what Pantanjali and yoga is originally about becoming aware of that destructive, divisive nature of the wheel of thought. That's what's driven us into eye dominance, driven us into this false poetic, driven us into this orchestra of a thousand <laughs> that makes us terribly strident sound and must be conducted, conducted by your uh, classic Charlie Chaplin dictator. It must be. Conductors, who cares? <laughs> who cares? It's a very uh, degenerate art form, conducting, in my view, in the present era. What you want are perhaps composers that perform. They're just a part of the um, repetitive machine So talking hands, talking feet, step time, the breath. While well, leave it open, why we speak and sing in steps. The breath could be and is continuous. It is a marvelous thing Take uh, poetry on the pray page. 
Look in thy mirror and tell the face thou viewest. Now is the time that face should form another, whose fresh repair, if now thou not renewest, thou dost beguile the world, unbless some mother. How many breaths is that? It's one of the Shakespeare love sonnets. All exactly 140 steps. And this one cheats a little bit because we have a few, depending on pronunciation, but let's not get technical. You see, that's where the whole thing goes wrong in thought. And we get two academics with the academic guns pointed at each other, and they'll make whole careers. No, it, it can't be like that. It has to be 11. <laughs> Well, they are 140 steps. Well, that's a magnificent uh, uh, form. It's a magnificent achievement. And it's wonderful to carry them um, in your medicine bag as one walks the land when you know them by heart. So we could do that in one breath, two breaths, three breaths, but it's important to know, as every singer knows. Or take another poem, breath, you invisible poem, ceaselessly going round your own being, pure exchange of world space, counterpoise in which I rhythmically reclaim myself. Ryoka, that's 36 steps. Atem, du unsichtbares Gedicht. It's not about counting them, at least at first. But what you do is that you, it's almost as if you run them in the cycle of simple to complexity. You see that rhythm, let's look at that. And we're just improvising. Breath, you invisible poem. You see, that's a performance thing. Like you can be looking at your audience. If you're reading, you see, you totally lose contact with your people in the circle that we call an audience. You totally lose. It's the sound and the meaning and the movement is directed with the eyes. Every real performer knows that. Watch. Cecilia Bartoli sing, or Kathy Barbarian. Everything they do is connected, resonating with their people, their people, in the circle of the performance, not just an audience with their eyes. If we're looking at a sheet of paper, for whatever reason, like I say, you're still practicing, right? We'll go home and practice a little bit more. So never trust a poet that's reading from a book. I'm not interested. 
And you can say, well, Cliff, be gentle. Not everyone. Well, <laughs> no, I beg your pardon. I'm just questioning that whole tradition because it's very destructive. And then it becomes a cult. And then we have to have a 600-page book about nonsense. It does not take many words to say the truth. So breath, and then you're looking, and how long can you sustain that silence and still hold the sustenuto, the energy of the poem? Hmm? And how are you going to measure it? Just clock? <laughs> 10 seconds? It's the energy. But if that energy breaks in the performance, you're dead. Every real performer even some conductors know that. So breath, you invisible poem. You see, that has a rhythm, breath. And you cannot write that rhythm down. Don't even try. That's not because it doesn't have order. It has an infinitely complex order, vastly beyond what we notate in music. Well, don't take my word for it. Try it. Just try to notate speech rhythms, the complexity. You see, but when it becomes ritualized in the performance space of poetry, we do something similar. It's a signature thing. The rhythm, I'm just thinking out loud, the rhythm is almost, is just, the movement is just as crucial as the sound of the vowels, the consonants. Change the rhythm and you're going to change the meaning, the energy. And sometimes that's how it manifests in that rhythm. Counterpoise in which I rhythmically reclaim myself. Every single one of those sounds has a distinct frequency and pitch, but we don't listen that way. They're all gliding and merging in infinite complexity, beyond any mathematics, beyond any computer modeling. A computer might be able to mechanically understand what the hell Cliff is talking about, breath, breath, whatever, but it would not sense the energy of the resonance. That is not possible in a machine. Intellect, yes, but not intelligence. That's the theme of another talk. So human beings are definitely good for something. Artificial intellect and Google notwithstanding. They might be able to beat the world's best Go player, but they're going to have a hell of a time imitating Rilke and Mozart let alone the balls and poplar where I sit in this marvelous, sparkling, clear mountain water. Breath, you invisible poem, ceaselessly turning round your own being. See, I changed it. Ceaselessly going round your own being. There's no paper, so you're improvising. What do we call that? Yes, jazz, always free and fixed together. 
See what paper has done to us? So we say in the circle and the square, we learn everything by heart. And it's almost a touchstone. It is a touchstone in a way. It does not take many words to say the truth. If we can't learn it by heart, there must be something wrong with it. Well, obviously, with longer things, it's different. But with poetry especially, and with performed music, it's very different. Performed dance. Well, there you have it. That's one of the inspirations of Talking Hands' Talking Feet. You see, when was the last time you saw a dancer using it? They learn everything by heart. And musicians always come up with a practical, oh, we can't do that because, we, you know, we have to do our concert every week, all the rest of it. Well, that's the cult, the tradition that's very destructive, has zero truth in function, but is kept alive because of the cult. Nobody listens to it or cares about it. It plays very little role in the circle of culture, let alone out here in Heartbreak Meadows where we're trying to understand plants and climate crisis and whatnot, or this water. So talking hands, talking feet. Dance. Well, how would you dance that breath? you invisible poem. Well, first, we, in the cycle of, we're talking about step time. Step time, talking hands, talking feet. First, it, the cycle of simplexity, simple to complex and back again, that is a central key feature of the circle and the square as project. It's one of the key fragmentations throughout the whole of world culture now. So talking hands, talking feet is a way of addressing that fragmentation. So we simplify that infinitely complex rhythm So then the first phrase, we do things by phrases, not lines. Lines is a feature of paper and scores. So phrase, say we didn't know how to read, but we know the poem. And the teacher is the taught in the circle and the square, so we're teaching it to ourselves. So how do we do that? We have, say we want to do that real poem. The first one, I'll be very quick. And the second part is a great Sonnets to Orpheus, completed, uh, I think, 1926 in Mouzeau, not very far from my base in Switzerland, where they speak French, just upstream is German, and where he spent, uh, with a very great privilege, and very passionately worked on the Dueno elegies and the great gift of the Sonnets to Orpheus. Well, that begins the second part. And it is a mystical meditation, very powerful, about what's something that's so primary that we take it for granted, our breath 
in breathing. Breath, you invisible poems. Well, that's seven steps. So in talking hands, talking feet, we straighten it out. So we go, breath, you invisible poems. Breath, you invisible poem. Now don't worry yet about how we count that. There's a whole technique of counting. Once you become more advanced and use this compositionally, that becomes very important. Because it's just like a car carpenter. I think of the Greek carpenters that uh, obviously didn't have centimeters and inches. But uh, from what I've read, and I find it very striking, Pythagorean, that their rulers were based on proportion. Not absolute uh, measure, like a second. It's a very absolute quality, an inch, a centimeter has a very absolute, a step is what we call a qualitative measure. It can become quantitative for mathematicians, but it's good for mathematicians to dabble more in this white water of quality and forget about all the equations. And then what we do in the circle and the square is that we step it in and out of measures, in and out of sound, in and out of pitch, in and out of music. So it can always go both ways, from music into poetry, from poetry into dance, from dance into poetry. It's all emerging from this generative source. So we simplify it, breath you invisible poem. Now then, so we have it in the tongue, right? So here are two words that we use in talking hands, talking feet. Tongue of foot and foot of tongue. Somewhat tongue in cheek. But that's as good as we can come up with now. What we're talking about is the synergism, totally natural with children, of everything we do. It must, I don't know that for a fact, but it must have in the ontogenesis of the human being the interconnectedness of tongue, hand, and foot. Somebody help me there. But whatever we do with the tongue, we do with the hands. And whatever we do with the hands, we do with the tongue. And whatever we do with the hands, we do with the feet. And all the way around to complete a circle. Always. And that becomes a part of our yoga Alexander technique practice. So for people who are serious yoga practitioners, uh, there is a tradition that I only know, I've never had the privilege to study with a guru, but it's called mantrayama, that working with sound, that's what we're doing. We're taking sound in the circle and the square especially as the primary movement of the universe. So it's a key feature of understanding everything, not just poetry and music. So it's a big deal, mantrayama. So we're studying um, mantras, sacred sounds, not text. The text came much later, but sounds passed on from teacher to student. 
But we're different in the circle in the square. The teacher is a child. Say you have no teacher. So you find that real home. Find your anywhere, the silence, the Orpheus. Then you open it up. And what you're going to have to do is what we ourselves do. Is you make a recording to liberate it from the page. And that's just a working hypothesis, as a scientist calls it. A work in progress. You just have to have something to start with. Everything is that way, really, when you think about it. So we have that recording, and we work from that, the text. We throw out the text, give it to somebody else, burn it or whatever. But now we got it. And then we learn it by heart, using step time and talking hands and talking feet. So the first step in step time is to simplify, simplify, simplify. And we're not just talking about Thoreau. It would have helped Thoreau's poetry tremendously back in those days. That's the great weakness of the Transcendentalists. We're working on them up here just by chance, Margaret Fuller especially, that uh, they had no real sense of music. But we'll come back to that on another occasion. So simplify. So you're running it, imagine taking this water and you're running it through purification filters and it becomes simpler and simpler and simpler. And eventually you get breath you invisible poem. Then you can simplify breath you invisible poem. And then reducing it to a single sound. And that sound has tempo, that sound has relative highness and lowness, and that somehow penetrates, resonates very deeply with the whole of our being, not just the eyes, not just the brain. That's why this tongue of foot, foot to tongue, tongue in cheek, but only slightly, is very important. And don't take my word for it. Just simply take any poem. You could take that poem. It's a little bit too complex. That's all right. And what do we call it? Share it. Not teach it. Share it with a child of any age. Now, if you can dance the poem, and you can tap the poem, drum the poem, conduct the poem, sing the poem, write it down if you want and know it by heart, especially. Is that true? We can only teach that which we already know by heart. And that's how we really learn as teachers. The teacher is the top. It's because the love energy is that which shares, communicates, awakens the intelligences of both the teacher and the top. So it's starting to get a little bit chilly here. We better draw this first rambling edition. It will tighten up. We want to get it as tight as a tabla. So talking hands, talking feet. Say you're a percussionist and you do a little bit of uh, real conducting. That means you conduct with your students in your own ensemble. 
you know, not the Beethoven stuff. So, say uh, you're working on tabla rhythms. Well, as we all know, in the great uh, Indian North and South uh, tradition of drumming, everything is done with a marvelous solfeggio vocalization. Well, that's the spirit. We're not imitating that. That's what we do everything that way in the circle and the square. So if you're just starting out with this sort of stuff as a poet, you got a lot of work to do. But if you're a percussionist, uh, you already have a head start. But then it falls apart when we come back into poetry. <laughs> Most percussionists I know uh, wouldn't even know. Rilke, is that a new kind of hamburger? <laughs> They're not interested in poetry. And that's understandable. I mean, they have a whole <laughs> world that they're totally immersed and devoted, immersed in and devoted to. Well, say you're in a uh, percussionist. Well, talking hands, talking feet. So in our practice, we get in our um, uh, comfortably in our lotus or half lotus, and you do this every day, right? An hour or two with your with your regular yoga. So it's a mantrayama. I'll just be very quick. And say you're working on. Um, uh, uh, musicians call it uh, composite or complementary rhythms. Say you're working on um, a Charles Ives piece or something, and you got to master this uh, three in the time of five. Well, that's what Talking Hands, Talking Feet is all about. So we get a one, two, three, four, five, duck, duck, duck. That you can't see me now, uh, but I'm conducting with my left hand a, a nice tight five. And now uh, I'll just do this to show how powerful perhaps the talking hands, talking feet. See, I'm still conducting and talking and watching the stream and recording. You learn how to do, this is not multitasking, heaven forbid. That is self, pure illusion, self-deception in my view. But we're still conducting one... Uh, <laughs> All the birds are looking. That we're in the wilderness here, so we can just do what we want. One, two, three, to keep the beat going. And now we do what us musicians and percussionists, uh huh, we subdivide that rhythm into nice, neat triplets. So the mathematicians about among us will say, hey, well, we have five steps talking hands, talking feet, and we have five steps. Five happens to be a magic number. For those mathematicians who watch uh, number file, uh, five is special because, well, we do happen to have five, not quite five tongues, but five fingers and five toes, right? So for some reason, pantheon, pan, the um, five has become the symbol of all. So we stop a moment and that we use that. So our primary measure, I'm getting ahead, but we'll just do it for fun. Um, is five. We don't measure in fours. So talking hands, talking feet. So we're practicing our five. Now let's subdivide it. Now this is called neutral, no accent. So mathematicians, that means 15, right? 
the birds are joining in. No accents. It has to be perfectly neutral. And neutral in the circle and the square also means it has no direction. It's neither losing energy like this water could in a pool or gaining energy as it would in a waterfall. Crucially important in music. It's just in a very constant neutral flow. And now we put these little accents. One, two, three, one, two, three, one. So those are keeping with the... That happens to be the golden ratio in sound, but not uh, as they normally do it with pitch, which is not always a good idea, but in rhythm. We'll just stop with that. It's a lot to think about, but it's a wonderful practice. I'm holding the recorder with my right hand conducting with the so I can't quite do it with both. But tongue and foot, and I'm not going to get up and dance, but you do exactly that thing. Imagine how powerfully you get that poem, breath, you invisible poem. If you're out in the wilderness on these uh, dirt tracks and paths going everywhere, it's a labyrinth out here in former logging roads, and you get that poem in your feet and you start running it, well, just try it. We're going to be doing that later on in Talking Hands, Talking Feet. It's a way of getting poetry into the whole mind-body and the other way around, too. When we have that poem, to get the whole of it into living sound that we call music. In an unknown way. So we're really headed off. This is exciting. We're headed off to the wilderness. We've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. There goes the orchestra. Good riddance. I hope they go extinct. They're sucking up all the oxygen in the performance space and just repeat, repeat, repeat. Anyone who does another Mozart cycle of violin sonatas, they should be ashamed of themselves. Why aren't they out commissioning new pieces? Hmm? Or another book award. <laughs> it doesn't take many words to say the truth. So it's an adventure, and it's fun, especially once it gets grounded in your yoga Alexander technique practice. So that's it for now. Signing off for The Circle in the Square and picture-poems.com. Check out those Circle in the Square, Understanding the Shape of Change talk, because the Talking Hands, Talking Feet comes up um, as a kind of footnote frequently, and you can see how it might be um, fun and exciting to learn and do. Well, thanks for listening. Let me know what you think. This is Cliff. Ciao for now.